You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Zuman, Hefei, Jennings, Antonio, Drunken Dak, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest Commodore, Commodore Hayes, and as always, our quartermasters, Samuel and Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the years prior to 1670, Spain was engaged in two major wars. A war to restore the Portuguese throne to the Spanish Empire, and the war of devolution with France. They lost the war with Portugal, and thus they lost the Portuguese Empire and the income from the Portuguese Empire, and they won some of their territory back from France, but at a great financial cost. After those wars were over, they faced a number of internal struggles when a pro-French element within the government tried to take power from the Queen Regent, Mariana, who was Austrian. And due to all of these problems in the years prior to 1670, the crown, the Spanish crown, had to declare bankruptcy twice. Their empire was slipping away, and the money that came with it, They needed to bring in some cash, and they needed to stem the flow of income and territory from out of their control, and they chose to start that project with Jamaica and the Pirates. This is episode 106, The Story So Far, Part 7. The Jamaicans, the legitimate planters and merchants on Jamaica, not the Pirates, they started having problems right about 1670, There was another rash of guerrilla attacks from the maroon camps deep inland. But even worse than that, the Spanish began employing privateers. This was against the Spanish way of life. You might call it the Spanish Code of Honor. The Spanish, especially at the time, believed in an orderly, top-down approach to nearly all things, but especially to the military. However, privateers had proven to be cheap and extremely effective. Sailors from all across the Spanish Empire jumped at the opportunity. They desperately wanted the chance to attack the English and to get rich doing it. It got so bad around Jamaica that the Jamaican planters were unable to safely get their sugar to Europe. There was a flurry of letters flying from Governor Modiford's desk to that of Lord Arlington in Virginia. According to Modiford, the perpetrator was, quote, Captain Manuel de Rivera, 
a Portuguese with letters of reprisal through the whole West Indies for satisfaction of the Jamaicans taking Portobello. End quote. And the English on Jamaica were really feeling the economic pinch. But Charles II, their monarch, was still avidly against privateering, and he wouldn't hear of any attack on Spanish interests. But his newest advisers were much less inclined toward a treaty with Spain, and they urged the king to empower Lord Arlington and Governor Modiford, and by extension, Admiral Henry Morgan. The king bent a bit on this point, and the Council of Jamaica convened. They wrote, quote, In accordance with His Majesty's instructions to Governor Modiford, it is ordered that a commission be granted to Admiral Henry Morgan to be commander-in-chief of all the ships of war belonging to this harbor, and to attack, seize, and destroy the enemy's vessels, End quote. This was actually something of an imposition to Henry Morgan. He was busy running two plantations and spending time with his family. He was also beginning to eye Jamaican politics. This would take a lot of his time and resources, but he stepped up and did the job that the council asked him to. Only a few days later, a letter would arrive in Port Royal addressed to Henry Morgan. It was from the Spanish privateer admiral, who Modiford had mentioned several times in his letters, but his proper name was Admiral Manuel Rivero Pardal. In the letter, he listed his prizes, which was something of a subtle brag, perhaps not so subtle, but then he came out and challenged Morgan directly. He wrote, quote, I come to seek General Morgan. I crave he would come out upon the coast and seek me, that he might see the valor of the Spaniards. End quote. Pardal was lurking off the coast of Jamaica when he sent this letter to shore. This was a challenge for a duel. He was saying he wanted to meet Morgan on the coast and fight a duel to the death. Man, I love the Spanish. He wanted to fight Morgan right there on the beach at Port Royal where everyone could see. But sadly, Morgan wasn't in Port Royal any longer. He was already gone. After he received his commission, he'd wasted no time. At this point, he was at Bluefields Bay, well to the west of Port Royal. He was there gathering his fleet, and most of his top officers were out recruiting, including John Morris, if you remember him. Well, a hurricane hit the West Indies while all of these officers were out recruiting. Morgan had actually left Bluefields when the hurricane hit on his way to Tortuga, but his ships were fine. Morris, on the other hand, was forced to take shelter in a secluded cove on the southern coast of Cuba. It was a good cove for taking shelter during a hurricane, and Morris actually found that it was already occupied. Who would you imagine, if you were writing a story about pirates and privateers, who would you imagine that John Morris, Henry Morgan's right-hand man for five years now, who do you imagine he ran into there in this secluded Cuban cove? If you guessed Admiral Manuel Rivero Pardal, you win a prize. Pardal was taking shelter with 80 musketeers. Now, according to the story we're given, all 80 were on board the ship San Pedro y la Fama, which was his flagship. But this is the story told by John Morris. If we believe his version of the tale... He approached and began firing at the Spanish ship, and immediately all of the Spanish soldiers jumped overboard and fled to shore. Now, I don't know that we can trust John Morris on this. It seems equally likely, or perhaps even more likely to me, 
that most of those 80 musketeers were on shore to weather the storm while the ship was out in the harbor with maybe a skeleton crew. However, whatever the truth here, Pardal was on board, and John Morris, or one of his men, killed him and took the San Pedro y la Fama. It's kind of a shame, narratively speaking. Admiral Pardal would have made a great antagonist for this section of the story, but he was killed almost accidentally by one of Henry Morgan's underlings. It doesn't make for a climax, exactly. But Morgan did have a different kind of trouble now that he was off the coast of Santo Domingo. He was in a harbor with about a dozen ships or so, almost all of them English but a couple of Dutch ships, but French buccaneers were turning out in droves. I mean, an insane amount of buccaneers were showing up there on the coast, hoping to join with this pirate fleet. But they didn't have ships of their own. These were just sailors that wanted a crew to join. Now, Morgan was in his flagship Satisfaction of 120 tons with 22 big guns and six brass swivel guns on board, as well as 100 men. Lauro Prince, or Lawrence Prince, was there in the Pearl of 12 guns. Joseph Bradley and Thomas Harris, both of whom we've mentioned before, were there in the Mayflower of 14 guns and the Mary of 12 guns, respectively. The Lily, the Port Royal, and the Gift were the other ships of any real power, with 10, 12, and 12 guns, respectively. And then there was another civilian craft owned by one Captain Erasmus of 12 guns. The rest of the craft there were mostly small barks with maybe four or two or even zero guns, but carrying a number of privateers. And that's a reasonable number of ships, but they already had crews. So what were you going to do when over a thousand French buccaneers showed up on the coast hoping to join up with you? Well, then shortly thereafter, a few more Dutch and French ships arrived, Captain by Gel Leca, Roque Brasiliano, Pierre de Picard, and Captain Diego, notably. But even those ships weren't nearly enough to take on all of these buccaneers on the coast. So quartermasters from all of the ships I just mentioned scoured the French camps. They were searching for the best recruits among them. But the question is, why were there so many buccaneers here? Why would there be so many men looking for a crew if there weren't captains and ships to carry them? Well, remember that war of devolution we mentioned at the beginning of the episode between Spain and France? A large part of that war in the American theater had been fought on a naval front by privateers. There were tons of French privateers in the West Indies at this point, and all of their commissions had dried up, and many of their ships had gone home, often without them. So there were more than a thousand buccaneers here who were out of work and wanted a crew. But since the English admiral of the Brethren of the Coast was handing out commissions, everyone wanted... Well, actually, there were a few ship captains here who wanted a commission of their own, and they all got one, but if not, they were searching for a spot on one of these other ships. And the crews of every ship in the harbor here swelled to bursting. And for what they had in mind, that's a good thing. And then shortly thereafter, John Morris showed up with the Fama that he had captured off the coast of Cuba and another merchant ship that he'd captured on the way back. These two ships could carry probably about three or four hundred men, which helped ease the tension considerably, but then Morgan ran into another major problem. He had to figure out how to feed all of these crewmen. 
Right now, they could feed themselves on the coast, but when they got under sail, he had to make sure that everyone had enough food. And actually, the French buccaneers waiting on the shore took care of a lot of that themselves. They went out to hunt boar and beef, and then they would salt and smoke it, and Morgan would pay them for the meat. And if, as a hunting party, they did really well, then a group of buccaneers might get noticed by Morgan or one of the other captains and put on board a ship. But even all of that boar and beef coming in wasn't nearly enough. And it was about that time that another pirate showed up. He was an admiral with six ships under his command. His name was Edward Collier, and by this point he was sort of Morgan's second-in-command. John Morris was still Morgan's number two, but Edward Collier was Morgan's vice-admiral. He had been there at Puerto Principe and Portobello and Maracaibo. He had been with Morgan for some time. Actually, he captured Morgan's flagship, Satisfaction, and gave it to his commander. But now Morgan tasked Collier with the critical role of finding food for the fleet, and he suggested that Collier sail on Rio de la Hacha, on the coast of modern Venezuela. Collier set sail with his fleet and covered the several hundred miles, only to be becalmed just outside of Rio de la Hacha. But then he found a 20-gun Spanish galleon in the harbor. Now the galleon was empty, but the soldiers that would have crewed that galleon were in the fortress of Rio de la Hacha. And this galleon was actually the vice-admiral to the fleet of the late Admiral Pardal. Those privateers, those Spanish privateers, fired on the pirates, but Collier was becalmed just out of range, lucky for him. The Spanish fired for 24 hours until they finally decided it was fruitless. But those weren't empty shots. They wanted to keep the pirates at bay and those 24 hours gave the people of Rio de la Hacha plenty of time to hide their valuables and flee into the wild. Collier finally made it to shore and took the fortress with a fair bit of ease, and the Spanish in there surrendered without a further fight. They were allowed to live while the buccaneers scoured the fort and the town. Now they found a bit of treasure they could carry away, a few bags of pearls and some silver, although they did notably miss a cache of 200,000 pieces of eight hidden deep in the fortress. But silver and pearls and other valuables weren't their goal here on Rio de la Hacha. And they didn't find the food they were after in town either. So Collier ordered his men out into the wild to hunt the locals down. Now they found most of the townsfolk and brought them back to the fortress where they held everyone for ransom. But when the locals realized that the pirates here weren't after their valuables, they'd keep what they'd already found, obviously, but when it came out that they were after corn, or maize, the people agreed to bring them literal tons of it, as long as they would leave without killing anyone. They had it ready and prepared in only a few days. So, within a week after arriving, Collier and his men were headed back to Henry Morgan, off the coast of Santo Domingo. Naturally, they also took the cannons, powder, shot, and that beautiful galleon in the harbor, La Gallardina, with them. When Collier arrived with the fleet, he found that there were now seven new French ships that had arrived while he was gone. Morgan gave La Gallardina, that Spanish galleon, to the admiral of that fleet of seven French vessels, a man named Captain Gasquione. 
That French squadron brought 60 additional guns and 500 men to their cause, and they were able to take yet more of the pirates that were on the shore there. But once Morgan's fleet and Collier's fleet and the two separate French and Dutch buccaneering fleets had taken every pirate on board they could, Morgan told the rest of the men on the shore that there was no more room. But then Morgan gathered a council on the shore. There were 2,000 men gathered around them in separate camps while the captains talked in the middle of it. And the first thing on their agenda was to discuss a new code. The best place to find out about the pirate way of life, which is something I'd like to talk about today, when you're not looking at just the famous names and captains, but when you're looking at the real people on board pirate ships, the best place to find out about that is the pirate code. A pirate code was the governing document around which a pirate crew was built, and it's an old privateer tradition, and it was transferred to the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean. That's one of the first places we have note of it being widespread. But then it traveled west with the Barbary pirates who made their way to the Americas. A pirate code is essentially a constitution, and a few historians and many amateur piratologists consider this New World nautical tradition of the pirate code a direct precursor of the U.S. Constitution. And there's some validity to that, For example, the first thing that happened in a pirate code, much like in the Constitution, was to outline the roles of leadership on board the ship. Obviously, there was the captain. Now, he had to be elected, and his power was never absolute. He was given absolute authority, almost absolute authority, during times of battle. But that's like the declaration of a state of emergency or martial law. That's a time when the president or the captain has extreme powers given to them, outside of the normal bounds of power. And that makes sense, right? If the commands of the captain during a time of battle could be countermanded, then that would lead to chaos and ultimately to defeat. It's a question of, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. But the captain would face the consequences of the decisions that he made when the crisis was over, if they survived. If he makes a bad decision, and men die because of it, the captain will have to answer for that. However, most of the time, the captain's authority... Well, especially during the buccaneering era, the captain often owned the ship, so he was very influential, but his actual authority was relatively minimal. For example, the captain did not have the power to order a crewman beaten. But most naval captains or merchant captains, they all had that power, but not a buccaneer captain. Now, say a crew member violated one of the rules, and those rules were outlined in the pirate code, but he would go before a jury of his peers. Literally, his peers. The entire crew would assemble and hear the case. They would hear what had happened, and what the offender's defense was. Then the crew would vote on the guilt or innocence of the accused, and were they found guilty, the crew would decide the punishment via a vote. The captain also didn't have the authority to choose targets on a whim. Now, often the crew would be working to see the captain's plan through. Maybe he had a lead on a rich target, or maybe he wanted to capture this or that city, But if the crew decided that that was a bad idea, they could vote to stop that plan. 
and if they happened upon a ship out on the ocean, and the captain wanted to bring her in, he had to bring his case to do so before the crew, who voted on it. And then, again, much like the U.S. Constitution, there were checks and balances on the power of the captain. The most notable check on his power is that the crew could at any time vote the captain out of office. If his decisions were bad, he would be voted out. If his decisions were very bad, he would be voted out and executed or exiled. This happened all the time on board pirate ships. But as for the balance aspect of the checks and balances, the most notable one of those was the quartermaster. Traditionally speaking, in military terms rather than pirate terms, a quartermaster was a petty officer who oversaw the maintenance of soldiers' quarters. It was the quartermaster's job to ensure that everything was up to regulation. Are the men getting to sleep on time? Are they drinking too much? Is there sufficient food? Is anyone in camp stealing? You know, that sort of thing. But as far as pirates were concerned, the quartermaster was the second most powerful person on the ship. He was kind of a representative of the crew, though. You know, pirates didn't have first mates, or mates in general, on board their ships. And the quartermaster was almost the equal of the captain in his authority. But again, that's not a huge amount of hard power. However, the quartermaster's job was to present the wishes of the crew to the captain. I see the quartermaster in a lot of ways as an old-time union boss. But then, perhaps his most important job, the quartermaster oversaw the storage and disbursement of the funds on board. More on that in a minute. Third in the chain of command, and you know that's not really how it worked. They were all voted into these positions, so there wasn't really a chain of command. But the person who was under the quartermaster in terms of authority... On board pirate ships, especially ships of different nationalities, he could go by any of a number of different titles, and this position didn't always really exist, but he was often called the coxswain, or coxswain for you readers out there, but the coxswain was often in charge of military affairs. Sometimes he would be kind of the general of the ship, and it was usually the coxswain who, if the pirates captured another vessel, he would often bring that ship with a small crew into port. And then, sometimes under the coxswain's authority, but sometimes his peers, depending on what the code said, were the pilot and the gunner on board a ship. A pilot's job was mostly navigation, and occasionally cartography if it was necessary, and then, of course, actually steering the ship around. And you know, you'll find that captains, pilots, and coxswains were kind of all on the same career path. As far as the day-to-day -day working of a ship's life went, often they were interchangeable. They were the crew who knew best how to navigate, how to manipulate the sails, and order other men to manipulate the sails, and then actually steer the ship around. Usually it was one of those three that you would find at the helm. You would usually not find the gunner at the helm, because he was in charge of the guns. And... The gunner was, you know, a military leader. The crews that actually manned the guns were under his authority, and he had to see to the maintenance. He had to keep an eye on things like the shot and powder, and in that role worked closely with the quartermaster and the boatswain. Now the boatswain, or boatswain for you readers out there, 
The boatswain was a role that would have been quartermaster in the non-pirate traditional military version of the office. The boatswain was a manager on board the ship. He made sure that all of the men were at their posts. He made sure that the work was getting done with a decent amount of speed, and he made sure that all of the supplies were in order. If there were any concerns, say, if someone were stealing, it was the boatswain's job to bring that to the attention of the quartermaster. And then there were the jobs that were technically officers, but not in any line of command. You know, the surgeon, who has an obvious job. The cook, which is an obvious job. And then the carpenter. Now, the carpenter was a carpenter, but really, his job was to oversee the maintenance crew of the ship. And those kind of jobs, hopefully they were done well. And if they didn't have someone who was a decent surgeon or a decent cook, they were always on the lookout for better surgeons and cooks. They were highly valued positions. But then there were the petty officers, the pirates who worked underneath the officers we've just mentioned. You know, pirates who made the sails or worked the rigging or helped the cook or the pirates who actually fired the guns. Now, some of this might seem a bit surprising to some people. You know, there's an image of pirate crews as hectic, drunken, riotous groups. And yeah, they could be that way, but usually that was on shore. They couldn't be that way at sea. At sea, they had to keep the ship sailing. That was their way of life. That was the thing that ensured they would survive. And keeping a ship sailing, especially in the age of sail... Well, that meant an orderly, well-maintained, well-organized crew. You know, if they were actually just drunk and gambling and fighting all of the time, how would they get anywhere? How would they keep the sails and the ropes from rotting? How would they keep the hull from cracking open? It's better to think of pirates rather than the drunken, debaucherous fools that they're often depicted as. It's better to think of them as professional private, mercenary naval operators. And when we think of them that way, that explains why they were often so successful against odds that were not in their favor. That, and, of course, capitalism. See, pirates were fighting for their own self-interest, not just their survival, but their fortunes. You know, a naval gunner in the British Navy, for example, definitely knew how to do his job, but if the best he was offered was a paltry wage and the threat of a beating, well, those aren't the best motivators. You know, he might not give the extra mile unless his life was actively in danger. But what would happen if you promised that naval gunner a purse full of Spanish silver? You might all of a sudden see them fight a lot harder to win. But we'll get to those purses of silver in a minute. If pirate crews were so much more organized than popular mythology might lead you to believe, what kind of rules did they have to follow on board? Well, the most important rule was that they actually had to do their jobs. You know, no drinking, no dicing while you were supposed to be on duty. And if they failed to do their jobs, there's a very good chance that they would face a trial before their peers. I mean, imagine you were the sailmaker on board a pirate ship, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the ocean, all of your sails fell apart and left you stranded out there. You might find that the rest of the crew was very, very angry with you. And then, most ships had rules regulated the fun things, the drinking, the gambling, the women, the property. All three were potential distractions that could cause rifts within the crew, 
and oftentimes they were banned on board to one extent or another. But let's talk about the money, because that usually takes up the bulk of every pirate code out there. And we actually have an excellent guide from right about 1670, from this voyage in particular, from this meeting on the coast of Santo Domingo. Alexander Exquimelin wrote about the ship's articles used by these buccaneers. Every member of the brethren agreed to take these rules before setting sail. According to Exquimelin, these rules looked like this, quote, They draw up an agreement, or chasse parti. Usually they agree on the following terms. Providing they capture a ship, first of all, these amounts would be deducted from the capital. End quote. A couple of side notes here. The chasse parti was French for hunting party, which meant the crew. And then that first line, providing they capture a ship, was shortened in later pirate codes to no prey, no pay. And then Exquimelin tells us what sums were automatically deducted. 200 pieces of eight went immediately to the ship for the buying of supplies and the like. And then the carpenter, the surgeon, and the cook would receive a sum between 100 and 300 pieces of eight to resupply their stores. But that was just automatically paid to them because... Even if they got to keep a little extra on the side, those were very specialized jobs that kept the ship sailing, they kept the ship healthy, and they kept the crew fed. And then there were the injury payments. Exquimelin writes, quote, For the loss of a right arm, 600 pieces of eight or six slaves. For a left arm, 500 pieces of eight or five slaves. And... I'm going to cut out the slaves line from here on, but one slave was equal to 100 pieces of eight in this document. He goes on, The loss of a right leg bought 500 pieces of eight, a left leg 400, an eye 100, and the same award was made for the loss of a finger. A severe internal injury, which meant the victim had to have a pipe inserted in his body, would earn 500 pieces of eight. Then, when the special payments were doled out, Exquimelin goes on, quote, The rest of the prize would be divided. The captain draws four or five portions, perhaps even more. The rest of the men share uniformly. When a ship has been captured, the men decide whether to keep it or not. When a ship is robbed, nobody must plunder and keep his loot to himself. Everything taken, money, jewels, precious stones, and goods, must be shared among them all, end quote. The one thing that Exquimelin leaves out, and his motivations to do so are suspect to me, but he leaves out the 10% that would go to whoever gave them the commission, usually the governor of Port Royal or Tortuga. But that's the gist of all pirate codes, and later on we'll see variations of it, but for now that's the basis for what we have. And I wanted to cover them here because, well... On these episodes, which are a look back, it's important to understand the code to understand the buccaneers' way of life. And they were agreed to by every soldier, privateer, buccaneer, and pirate there on the coast of Santo Domingo in late 1670. But at this conclave, beyond the code, there were a few other things to decide. First, Morgan made the decision to split the fleet into three squadrons— he would command the first and largest squadron. The second was commanded by Edward Collier, and the third was a French fleet commanded by Capitan Gasquione. There was actually a fourth squadron, but it wouldn't be part of the fleet as a whole. It had a different job. More on that in a minute. But then they had to make up a plan. 
They tossed around all the usual ideas. Campeche, Havana, even Cartagena was brought up, which would have been incredibly foolish. But Morgan had an audacious idea. Panama. Strike the Spanish where they least expect it, at their treasure house where no one had ever successfully raided. Not even Francis Drake had taken Panama. It was a rich prize which would make the men very happy, and it was a big, shocking prize which would deal a psychological blow to the Spanish, which was a large part of Morgan's goal here. But there was a reason that this richest of all Spanish cities in the West Indies had never been taken. It was going to be a very hard job. There were miles of jungle filled with hostile Indians and creatures that wanted to eat them, and at the end of all that, an army would be waiting for them. But right here, right now, on the beach of Santo Domingo, they had the numbers that no other pirate armada had ever seen. They had well over 2,000 men, and all of them were prepared to do whatever it took to attack Spain. And Morgan argued successfully that Panama was the best place to strike. Now, I'm not going to spend an undue amount of time on the voyage and the battles to come. If you really want a blow-by-blow account, I would suggest you check out episode 31 of this show, Panama. Or, if you'd like to read about it, the copy of The Buccaneers of America is a great investment. Really, I don't want to try and tell that story today because I don't think I could do a better job than I did back on episode 31. But what's really important to understanding the story of piracy moving forward is what comes after Panama. However, we do need to cover what happened here. Morgan sent that fourth smaller squadron off on the job that they would be to do, but his first job with the main bulk of the fleet was to capture Isla de Providencia, Providence Island. Now, Providence was the site of many defeats for the English, for the Providence Company back in 1631, and for the last admiral of the Brethren, Edward Mansvelt. A number of the pirates here on this raid had been there when Mansvelt died. But it still held an allure for these pirates. There was the the pie-in-the-sky allure of a pirate nation and those sorts of ideals, but for Morgan, the Isla de Providencia was a tactical need. Providence had a strong fort that guarded the port there, and Providence was just about halfway between Panama and Port Royal, a little bit closer to Jamaica, but it was a necessary port to guard their way home. They would have to stop somewhere to reprovision when they left Panama, and they could do so on the Mosquito Coast, but if the island of Providence was filled with Spanish soldiers, that might be a deadly trap. So Morgan took the island. There really wasn't much of a fight against his many, many ships, guns, and men, but he left 200 of those men behind to man the guns and to guard Providence, to guard their line of escape. But that smaller fleet, that fourth squadron, was led by Captain Joseph Bradley, and it included Gel Leca and Roque Brasiliano. Their job was to capture Chagres Castle, or Fort San Lorenzo to the Spanish, which lay on the north coast of Panama. Fort San Lorenzo was several miles to the west of Portobello, on the north coast of Panama. It was less populous, but the fort there was spectacular, because oftentimes, if for whatever reason, the silver trains didn't go to Portobello, they would go to Fort San Lorenzo. Now, Captain Bradley died in the assault, as did a number of the pirates in this small mission, but they still captured the fort. 
Morgan and the bulk of the fleet would arrive a few weeks later. And this, the reason he chose Chagres Castle, was because they could capture or kill the soldiers there, but there wasn't a large populace they would have to enslave. There were some, but not as big as Portobello. And here, well, they needed to hold this fort as well. See, Fort San Lorenzo would guard the harbor, and that would be an excellent place for them to leave all of their ships, which is exactly what they did. Morgan left a couple of hundred additional men here to guard their ships, and then the rest of the troops, about 2,000 men strong, began their march inland. Now, the march over Panama was grueling. Imagine giant mosquitoes and deadly cats and hungry caiman. Imagine marching 100 miles, carrying 100 pounds of equipment through the jungle in 100-degree weather with 100% humidity. For our non-American listeners, well, the numbers don't line up as well when you're not using those measurements, but imagine the opening scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, with Indiana Jones marching through the jungle, but imagine that Indiana Jones is wearing wool and linen and carrying a musket and all of the necessary shot and powder as well as a backpack. Also, he's got a full beard and long hair. But they captured the town of Las Cruces, the crossroads of Panama, and held that, he left a couple of hundred additional men, to guard their escape and continued on. I like his strategy taking cities, holding cities, leaving a large number of soldiers to guard those cities to ensure that they would be able to return to their ships and to Port Royal. Shortly before arriving at Panama City, and it was just called Panama back in 1671, the pirates suffered an ambush from a militia of native peoples, and that ambush actually did a fair amount of damage. They had a hard time fighting it off, but the pirates did survive, and they emerged from the jungle onto a large hillside that was full of cattle on 27 January 1671. That night, they built fires on the hillside, big ones. They slaughtered cattle in huge numbers. To the people of Panama, the hillside looked something like the night sky, dotted with yellow fires. And then streams of blood from all of the cattle that they had slaughtered began to flow downhill toward Panama. They described it very much as a scene directly from hell. This terrified the Panamanians. The next morning, the pirates woke up and marched on Panama, split into four columns. Everything that followed was a proper battle. This wasn't a pirate raid in any sense of the word. They weren't capturing a fort and firing their muskets. There were thousands of men outside Panama, clashing, they were split up into regiments of musketeers, and instead of, you know, storming the walls, they had to take ground in a fashion that we might have seen back in Europe. This looked not unlike a battle, well, except for the terrain, which was tropical, but it looked not unlike a battle you might have seen in the Thirty Years' War, or, honestly, aside from the artillery, something you might have seen in the Napoleonic Wars. Morgan had two major disadvantages in this battle. First, Morgan didn't have any heavy artillery, and the Panamanians did, but even more important than that, Morgan did not have any cavalry, and the Spanish had a lot. The pirates were outflanked time and again, but their superior marksmanship won out, and eventually, through one of those miraculous battlefield appearances of a unit of infantry, they managed to win the day. 
Morgan and the pirates were victorious at Panama. Now, they faced a fair amount of fierce fighting when they took the city, but they won there as well, and soon enough Panama belonged to them. There was one major hitch, though. In the time that it had taken them to feast on their cattle and win the battle, the Panamanians had loaded up all of their treasure onto a ship and sent it off into the southern ocean. This was a relatively large Spanish galleon filled with all of the treasure that Panama held. That was a lot of silver, gold, and jewels, not to mention the indigo and other rare goods. What would have easily been the most profitable raid thus far in pirate history was sailing away from them as fast as possible. Naturally, Morgan sent ships out to search for this treasure galleon, and at one point, we would find out later, they came tantalizingly close, but the treasure slipped through their fingers. Now that wasn't everything in Panama. The pirates spent several weeks stripping whatever they could from the city, but it was the most valuable plunder that they could have hoped for. But when they had taken everything of value, and a large section of Panama burned to the ground, nobody exactly agrees on how or why that happened, but after that the army marched north. Now the trip back was no easier, and actually it would have been a fair bit worse. First of all, the men were loaded down with the treasure they had, but worse than that was that the treasure they did have was not the piles of gold that they had anticipated. So the men began to grumble, and then rumors started spreading that Morgan had actually found that ship full of treasure, but was hiding it from them. Perhaps he was sailing it around the coast of South America to bring it to him personally. Now, very little would ever come of all this grumbling, but it did spell the end of Henry Morgan's career as Admiral of the Brethren of the Coast. It seemed very clear that the men weren't going to mutiny. They did have enough money in their pockets to keep that from happening, but they weren't going to follow Henry Morgan into battle ever again. However, Morgan's career as Admiral of the Brethren of the Coast was coming to an end regardless of a few angry pirates. At Fort San Lorenzo, on the northern coast of Panama, the pirates split the plunder up. They ensured that there would be enough to give the shares to the men who had held providence for them, and there was a little bit of melodrama that may or may not have had any basis in fact concerning a Spanish princess who was kept captive by Morgan. But in the end, there at Fort San Lorenzo, this greatest of all pirate fleets, went their separate ways. But here is where the real trouble started, or rather, it started a few months earlier. Morgan got his commission in July of 1670, and left Port Royal almost immediately. But that very same month, England and Spain signed a treaty, the Treaty of Madrid. The Treaty of Madrid secured all English possessions in the West Indies provided they did not continue attacking Spanish possessions. That included Jamaica. That means that Jamaica was secure, and it meant that the attacks on their shipping would cease. Now, remember when Morgan got his commission, and then that letter arrived from that Spanish privateer admiral, but Morgan was already gone? Well, at almost that same time, Lord Arlington, up in Virginia, sent a letter to Modifort telling him to hold off on any pirate raids. He didn't have any specifics for the governor, but he told him that something big was coming down the pipeline and that allowing the pirates off their leash might prove very damaging. 
Modiford did write a letter to Henry Morgan and sent it off to him at Tortuga, but by the time he got it out to him, the pirates were already headed south. At least, that's what Henry Morgan would say later on. We don't really know whether or not he received word of the order to hold off. Perhaps he did get that letter and just chose to ignore it. His freedom in the months to come would hinge on that very question. Regardless, though, he still attacked Panama a full six months after the Treaty of Madrid was signed. Not only did he attack Panama, not only did he plunder the city, he burnt a full third of Panama to the ground, or that's what the Spanish alleged. Morgan tells us that it was in fact a Spanish plot to keep the pirates from getting anything else from the city to burn part of the town down. Exquimelin tells us that it was in fact a bunch of drunken, angry pirates who didn't get the money they had hoped for that decided to burn it down. Like I said, nobody knows, nobody can agree. But due to all of this tragedy, the Treaty of Madrid nearly fell apart. England and Spain very nearly went to a very real war. You know, not pirates attacking Spanish possessions, not Spanish privateers capturing ships, but armies in Europe marching and clashing. In an effort to prevent that, the king ordered a big, showy procession of ships to sail to Jamaica to arrest Governor Thomas Modiford and Admiral Henry Morgan. This was a naval expedition to show that he was not messing around. Modiford and Morgan were transported back to England, but they were transported separately. However, neither of them had a happy time of it. Morgan was stuck in a dank, dirty, and unpleasant ship's hold. His cellmate was another Jamaican being sent to England for trial. That Jamaican happened to be a vagrant, a rapist, and a murderer. Now, Thomas Modiford received no trial. After returning to London, he was merely thrown into the Tower of London unceremoniously. But Morgan was a bit more lucky here, even if it might not have seemed so at first. Modiford, you know, he had to be clapped in irons. He was the governor who signed off on the raid on Panama. Even though he really didn't, that was Morgan acting more or less on his own, Modiford was ultimately responsible. The buck stopped with him, and the king had to show that he was being punished. He had to be seen in prison, suffering to appease the Spanish. But Morgan, though, well, his fate was a bit murkier. Now, the Spanish blamed him. They knew that he was the pirate responsible for Panama. In fact, they wanted him shipped over to Madrid where he could be executed publicly and immediately. A bit of recompense for what had happened at Panama. But Morgan was really popular in England. The people of England really loved Henry Morgan in his unrepentant, Protestant, and anti-Catholic ways. For all of those reasons, he was a national hero. He was seen as the heir of Sir Francis Drake. And in a time when Catholic sentiment was turning against King Charles, he seemed to be a symbol of everything that Charles was not. So Morgan was allowed to stay relatively free. He couldn't leave London. He would later on, but at first he was not allowed to leave London, but he could stay with family and friends in town. And eventually, he started getting invitations. He started making the rounds within London high society. 
Noblemen with ancient names and famous houses all wanted this scurrilous pirate, a well-dressed, well-mannered, well-spoken, and nice-smelling pirate, but a pirate nonetheless. They all wanted him to come to their dinner parties, and Morgan was happy to oblige. Now, at first it was just the anti-Spanish faction of London High Society that was having him over. And Morgan, you know, they'd eat dinner, and then they would pour the rum, probably, and Morgan would regale them with tales. And not simply retelling his experiences, but imagine after dinner, sitting in some very fine parlor, sipping rum, perhaps the women are even there with tots of rum of their own, and imagine this man standing before the fire in the center of the room, telling of his adventures in this huge, deep mariner's voice. And he's embellishing a bit, but with just enough violence and danger to excite the women. However, not so much that the women, you know, fainted or whatever women were supposed to have done at that time. So imagine all of that in your parlor. Wouldn't that be the sort of experience about which you would tell your friends? Soon enough, Morgan was working his way up through the High Society of London, even into the King's inner circle, eventually even into the pro-Spanish faction. However, he was careful when speaking with those people. He was certain to paint himself as a defender of English liberty, not a simple pirate. He was a champion of the poor, downtrodden plantation owners of Jamaica, which, I might note, most of these men invested in. We're talking about Lord High Admiral, lords of trade and plantations, men who had an interest in the Jamaica colony, not an intellectual interest, a financial interest, in some cases a substantial financial interest. And Morgan was telling them that he was there to ensure that their investment was safe. Eventually, Henry Morgan was called before, well, first he was called before the Lords of Trade and Plantations in what was the closest he ever experienced to a trial. The Lord High Admiral was there as well. But then he was called to meet with King Charles II personally. They had lunch together, and Morgan, without anyone else, any of the Privy Council present, spoke for two hours with the King. And apparently... King Charles very much enjoyed Henry Morgan's tales. He sympathized with the Jamaicans and with Henry Morgan personally, but the king gave no official decision. However, most believe that this meeting was when Morgan's freedom was guaranteed. Now, I'd like to give Morgan credit, his storytelling credit for his freedom, but there was more than that. See, in London, the tide was turning. The anti-Spanish faction was gaining traction and had the king's ear. Morgan might have actually had some influence on that, but more than that, there was a war that had broken out while Morgan was in London, and it was currently raging across the world. It was being fought in the East Indies, in Europe, and in North America, as well as the West Indies. More on that war next time, though. In 1674... More than four years after Modiford and Morgan had arrived in England, Modiford was released from the Tower of London. They had just entered into a war with Spain, so they no longer had to appease them. Modiford and Morgan were finally allowed to return home to Jamaica. They sailed on board a ship that also carried a new governor for Jamaica. 
He was of the anti-Spanish pro-war faction, and he was sent to replace the replacement for Modi Ford, who was very pro-Spanish. However, there were some rules set in place. Modi Ford was never to hold the seat of the governorship of Jamaica again, and Morgan had to swear an oath to give up privateering forever. And Morgan actually kept to that word. He would take up a seat on Jamaica's governing council, as would Modi Ford, and Morgan would actually serve as lieutenant governor twice, once as acting governor. Now, he probably invested in the more legitimate privateer voyages that are to come. He, at some point, might have even provided his ship, but he never sailed as a freebooter again. He bought another plantation, and then another, and then he spent his days overseeing his plantations. He spent his nights in the Port Royal taverns, reliving his glory days with other old pirates. But due to the war, the West Indies was about to become home to a new generation of pirates. And Morgan would find his loyalties split, split between his old friends and those new pirates. And Morgan would prove as effective a pirate hunter as he ever had been a pirate. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has left us a review or a rating, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has become a patron on Patreon. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. I'd also like to thank all of our newest patrons. Aside from our newest Commodore, Commodore Hayes, I would like to give special thanks to our new patrons Mark, Lucas, Din, Kurt, Julie, and Brandon. Brandon is the host of the Maritime History Podcast, which is an excellent show from which I took a fair amount of inspiration. You might check him out and see if you enjoy the show, and if so, I suggest you consider giving him your Patreon support as well. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with me on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. tonight.